0: Welcome to IndieDotes, the podcast that shares the stories of independent creators. I'm your host, Susan Bond. Today on the show, I have Abdi Grimm, who teaches people how to code better. He is the author of Confident Ruby and Exceptional Ruby. He's also the creator of Ruby Tapas, which you might be familiar with, and more recently, Mastered the Object-Oriented Mindset in Ruby and Rails. I was, we were just talking. We can't remember how long you've been doing Ruby Tapas. Like six years <laughs> yeah, at least? Yeah, approximately six years. <laughs> That's a long time.
1: Yeah, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't my full-time gig at the very beginning, but it, it transitioned into that pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, how quickly did you go from, you know, kind of working on it and then it being your full-time gig? Months?
1: Yeah, months, like, I, I'm really, really terrible, as we can see about, like, <laughs> timelines. I, I do not, I, I roughly remember that things happened in an order, like, you know, one thing before another, but how long they actually took is, is usually a mystery to me. I think somewhere between six months and a year, I think, it, it took okay. to, um, to become my full-time thing.
0: Got it. Well, I'll try to be careful. I like to ask about timelines. So you know, we'll, we'll, either you can make up a good answer or I'll just try to be really careful about it. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been working on Ruby Tappas for six years. I guess I'm wondering if you can just give us, you know, I know today we really want to talk about Moom, which I love. I don't even know if that's how you say it. But yeah, pretty much. The, yeah. Okay. Good. Master the object oriented mindset. Um, in Ruby and Rails, that was sort of in parentheses there. But I'd love to hear the sort of the, I know we also want to talk about the evolution of Ruby Tapas. So can you just give us sort of some, you know, maybe some of the highlights and the high points of the big inflection points uh, on Ruby Tapas?
1: Yeah, I mean, roughly it was like, first I went from consulting to launching this thing um, because I thought it could be cool and I thought it could be a good business. You know, I guess the first you know, interesting data point was just that I got pretty steady growth of subscribers. Um, and then at some point, you know, several months in, I hit the point where I felt like it was supporting the time that I put into it. Not like, it, did, it wasn't a full-time job, but it was like the hours that I was putting into it, I was getting that back out of it, compared to consulting work. And then a few months after that, it got to the point where I realized I could put my consulting work on hold. Wow. and, uh, I mean, other, other interesting points along the way have just been like adjusting how much output uh, that I have and, uh, also like transitioning some of the work over to other people.
0: Yeah. Can we talk about like, what do you mean by, um, the output?
1: So I started out, so Ruby tapas is a, a weekly screencast series. Um, and I started out doing three videos a week and that did not last long that was unsustainable uh, but I, I spent many years doing two two videos a week and uh, then more recently i decided i wanted to be able to do some of the videos that were like i had been putting off because they they took too much time they would take too much time to make and and so i transitioned to one video a week
0: right because well, how much time does making one video
1: take oh gosh i mean it varies uh, the biggest the biggest Part that varies is just the the writing of it. Some of them are very straightforward. I know exactly what I want to say, and so it takes an hour to write. Other ones take days to write because I'm I'm playing around with different ideas and uh, and researching and stuff like that. And then after that, there's production.
0: And so, how and how long is each episode? Maybe do they
1: vary? Uh, I shoot for around five minutes.
0: That's what I thought they were, but. Um, got it. Yeah. So it's, it's, I think it's always really interesting behind the scenes to show folks a five minute episode does not take five minutes to create. No, not, yeah. even, not even an hour to create probably days, days of work, days days and days of work. And so the other inflection point that you mentioned was getting support for the, for your, you know, with creation. Is that what you got support on?
1: Um, you mean like, uh, bringing other people on to help?
0: Yeah. Is that what, is that what the other, um, Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. Can you
0: tell me, like, yeah, why did you get to that point, and how did you get to that point? Yeah, I
1: mean, it's it's been a gradual process, um, but uh, from the beginning, I've I've always kept I've tried to keep half an eye on on how to eliminate myself from parts of the business that are that could be delegated, you know, parts of any, anywhere that I'm not like getting and feeling like I'm having leverage anymore. So there are those areas of the business where that feel really high leverage. I put a, you know, a little bit of focused work in and it it yields a, a terrific amount of, of output. And then there are other areas where I put a lot of, a lot of time into it and it just feels almost wasted. And, um, So I think one of the first things that I did was I, I got somebody to help out with support. So a lot of the sort of basic low level support questions and, and sorting out payment difficulties and stuff like that. I had somebody to help with that from a pretty early stage. Um, and then from there I've just sort of gradually added, constantly reevaluated what, what aspects of this business are, am I artificially making myself a bottleneck for?
0: Yeah. So what are, can you give us some other examples, just because I think people would like to specifically know what can you outsource and what do you yeah. think was important? What did you deem that was important for you to do versus you could give up?
1: Right. That's, a, that's always an interesting question. And, and the answer is always more, you can you can delegate more than you think at any given time. You're going to hit a point later where you realize that you know what you formerly thought you had to do yourself actually can be delegated. And um, I have about a uh, half a dozen people that I work with now, all, all part-timers that I hire for, for different parts of the process. And that includes, I have somebody who does a lot of site editing for me. So goes in, like after the, the episode is posted, goes in and copy edits everything and uh, links everything. Anything that should, should be a link to something else gets linked up and um, a lot of little uh, site Management uh, tasks like that, anything that didn't come out right in the formatting fixes that. Lots of stuff like that. I have, um, I've had it for a long time. I've had a video editor uh, who does the rough cutting for me. Um, I've got a really, a really um, sort of carefully put together process that enables me to separate to enables me to to delegate uh, the video editing to somebody else by using um, things like shot lists. Uh, so I'm only doing the, the final cut of the videos. I'm not having to go through all the footage and cut stuff together. Uh, these days, I actually have somebody who records a lot of the the, uh, the screen recordings for me. So I write the script, I do the voiceover, uh, but a lot of times somebody else is doing the screen recording. Um, I have an assistant who helps with things like scheduling guest, uh, guest screencasters. I call them guest chefs. And various other things like that. So I, I do all of my publishing on WordPress uh, because I don't believe in, in reinventing the wheel. And even though I'm a programmer and so I now have somebody who helps me out with the WordPress stuff so that I'm not sinking a whole bunch of time into site maintenance and figuring out like debugging stuff if, if something breaks.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good team. What was the thing that maybe was, you know, you talked about that you can delegate more than you think. Um, I'm curious, was there one thing that was hard for you to that to delegate or that you thought you couldn't?
1: Um, I think one of the things that that everyone is everyone I talk to is shocked to find out that I delegate is the screen recording aspect. I think most people assume that if somebody's doing screencasts, they're going to be recording their own screen just uh, by, you know, obviously. And, um, and that was definitely something that took a lot of planning and a lot of figuring out my workflow and modifying my workflow until I came to one that would enable me to, to separate the, you know, the, the writing of an episode, including the scripting out of what's going to happen on the screen from the actual recording of that part. Um, But once I got that, once I figured that part out and and did the planning for it, uh, transferring that over was relatively straightforward.
0: You know, you have a lot of help now. Does it give you, does it decrease the amount of time you have to spend with it? Does it give you creativity? Does it, you know what I mean? What does it give you to have that stuff sort of outsourced?
1: I mean, part of it is just, it gives me uh, some, some leeway to take care of other aspects of my life. Um, so over the course of this, my, my home uh, responsibilities have steadily grown. And okay. so part of it is just... Sort uh really necessary freeing up of my time to deal with stuff on the home front. it does give me a little bit more creative space, I think uh, that was definitely definitely a part of it you know when i'm when I'm thinking about how to delegate and what to delegate, what I think about a lot is just the idea that the only really essential part of it is of what I do is my taste. that's the the secret sauce such as such as as it is as long as my tastes cont- continue to inform the show other stuff is um you know other stuff can be delegated and if i can find ways of like transferring my tastes to somebody else for some aspect of it like recording the screen then i'll do that
0: that's such a good point have you ever i'm sure you've heard of it but um the, the npr guy
1: um, Ira.
0: Ira Glass. Right. Have you heard that? Have you heard that? Yeah. That's,
1: that's kind of what inspires that, that point of view. I think he really captures that well. The idea that, you know, what, what really makes you special as a creative is your tastes and, you know, and that's what you're trying to get at is like to really trying to, like, distill the essence of your taste.
0: Right, which I I just have the chills over here, because I I just love that you're talking about the way that you're thinking about delegation and taste, that you put those two things together and that you've distilled it down to, I need to have my taste sort of, that's the thing that's most important.
1: Yeah, so it's like right now, um, in this current year of the show, um, I'm doing, basically I'm doing guest year. So most of the episodes are guest episodes now, and I'm, I'm bringing in a lot of people that that, uh, that have something interesting to show, which, which brings a great v- variety to the show. But you know, where my, where my tastes enter in is first off, it's, it's who I invite There's yep. So that's an aspect of it, but it's also, I work very closely with them and I make sure that it still has, you know, the finished product. It isn't just something where they, they go off and make it. Uh, the finished product is something that has that it has my, my standards of production has my standards of like if they mention something in their in their draft script that i think not everyone in the audience is going to understand or is going to be familiar with i'll say well let's let's either take this out or let's do a better job of defining it you know just all the little things all the considerations that go into my taste when when scripting an episode i'm bringing that to the the guest episodes as well but you know not not trying to stomp all over their tastes either just trying to sort of bring those together
0: i think taste is something that is really important and is a great boundary line when we think about what do we delegate and what's really underneath all of this because we can get really super into the technology or we can get really into how something is edited or done or this or that right we can get really over sort of I'll just use the word controlling yeah (laughs) right or perfectionistic (laughs) but thinking about it as taste I think can really help you begin to unravel that a little bit
1: yeah and I think when it comes to that kind of over-controlling nature, I think that you know I'm from a programming background and I'm talking to programmers and I, in my experience when programmers try to do something independent like this, when they try to do a, a creative product like this, they tend to be really over controlling about stuff uh, because they're used to they're used to controlling all their tools and uh, they can and they can really sink a ton of time into being very precious about not just their workflows, but also tools and just how everything has to work. Um, and I'm actually currently—I've um, been doing a talk at some conferences that's basically saying, "Developers, stop being so precious about your about everything you do. If you if you uh, if you can yield on some of these less important things, you know, you can focus more on on having leverage in the world."
0: Right, like what's focus on what's most important, and it is a shift, right? I think in some ways, for programmers, really becoming a creator, especially if you want it to be anything that really could become a business or makes you money, you have to shift your mindset. Absolutely. What's the, uh, if, is, there, is the talk, can we get a video of the talk for the, for
1: our um, I don't know if any videos are out yet. Um, I did a okay. talk, I did one version in Nashville uh, for Southeast Ruby, and I did one version in Bangalore uh, for RubyConf uh, uh, India. And I think both of those were recorded, but, uh, you know, maybe those will be up soon. Maybe, maybe by the time you publish this.
0: Okay, cool. Well, in case, people might probably want to go watch that. So, we'll see if we can get that for the show notes. Okay, so you've delegated a lot of things. I want to kind of move us along here in the evolution of of the Ruby Tapas product. So, you, you know, you've got folks working on it. What was sort of the next big inflection point for Ruby Tapas?
1: Well, I think um, a sort of slow building realization over time was the just the the realization that as, as cool as it was to have a subscription product and have something that that generates a pretty reliable income and a lot of people really love it's a bit of a hamster wheel as well you know because I'm ex- it's it's not like some products where you create it once and you, you do do some you know some maintenance some some feature ads here and there but otherwise it's it's finished and you're just selling it it's something where it's a show so it's it's gotta have new content every single week that's been, and that has, you know, definitely pushed me to think about, okay, so eventually where do I go from here? Um, can I diversify in ways that are a little bit less, have me a little bit less on the hamster wheel? And part of that has been, like I said, doing a guest year uh, where a lot of the creative work is being done by guests instead of all all me all the time. Uh, but another aspect of that is looking at how I can take what I've already created and, and make that a different kind of into a different kind of product or incorporate that into a different kind of product. And so, uh, for the first time this year, I launched a course, which is a combination of existing Ruby tapas material that I kind of culled from the archives and new material that I'm creating. And that's, uh, that's called the the master of the object oriented mindset course.
0: Here's a timeline question. Get ready for it. How, Long? Do you think it was from that time when you thought, "Oh, I might create. I should create something different," and and really being able to launch it?
1: Too damn long. Um,
0: <laughs> That's an acceptable timeline answer.
1: <laughs> I love that. I, I it's hard to say at this point, like how long I was thinking about that, but I know I'd been thinking about I should do something along these lines for years before I actually did it, and and it turned out you know, that some of my trepidation was warranted because it's a lot of work turning one product into a different product or, you know, rolling a new product with some, with some existing material even.
0: Right, cause, because to be clear, Ruby Tappas and, and Moom, Master the Object-Oriented Mindset, they're different products, They are, right? Yeah, they're
1: different products. They are on different sites uh, and such as they are marketed at all, they're marketed differently.
0: Once you finally started when when did you start, would you say, really doing all that heavy lifting to create um Moom? Is that okay if I yeah, call it? Yeah,
1: Moom? that's what I call it.
0: <laughs> yeah, when when did you start working to create Moom and when did you launch? Like was it several months, was it a year? This is gonna
1: be fuzzy again, but last fall uh so we're we're recording this late February. Um uh, last fall I uh started on it and it was, yeah, it was, it was a, a couple of months, two to three months, I think that I, I spent really like putting in a bunch of work on the sideline, you know, on the side, uh, putting together a site and testing out different tools to use for aspects of it. And before that, like just figuring out, okay, what are the going to be the parts of this, what going to be the order of it, what's going to be. Existing material, what's going to be new material? what's the format of this thing? Format is a really, really hard question to answer when, when you're doing something like this. Like I, I can do ebooks, ebooks I'm used to. you know that's a pretty straightforward thing. You come up with an outline, you write the darn thing, you maybe come up with some packages that have some ex- extra material. But a course can mean a lot of different things. and so a lot of you know a lot of time I spent to just sort of like brainstorming and, and noodling over, okay, what, what do I want the format of this to look like?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you mean, you know, is it video versus live or do you mean something?
1: So else? many different aspects. Like how long, like how long is it or does it have a length? Is it just something that people take as lo- you know, as fast as they want to? Do I, am I going to just do, a an, like a, packaged, uh, take it your own pace thing from the beginning? Or am I going to do a, like a, a live version of it or a semi-live version of it? Am I, like you said, there's like the video versus audio versus text questions. Am I going to have quiz questions? Are they going to have right and wrong answers? Or am I just going to have them be be discussed? Am I going to grade them? Or, or is it just going to be for your own benefit? What else am I going to throw in there? You know, am I going to have, have related readings? Am I going to have uh, live elements in an otherwise non-live course? Um, you know, what I settled on is an interesting mix, which I can't say is like the right thing. It's just the thing that I... The, the, the collection that made sense to me, which is I'm starting out with um, a a live beta course that has an actual run it's it's uh, eight weeks long um, and we're in the I think the sixth week at this point point. and I decided I'd, I'd sell that as a as a semi live course with a capped number of seats so that I could just sort of produce at you know sell something before i'd i'd produced everything and also have feedback from a select you know from a small group of people who are taking the co- the beta version that would help me to sort of hone the material and figure out like is there something that i'm leaving out that they really need to to in order to comprehend what i'm talking about and stuff like that and what i've had is like a, is a mix of i have i have non-live lessons so i have video lessons that are drawn from my archives, but then I'm also doing i um, I'm doing a series a, a new series of videos that are just recordings of pair programming sessions with me um, and another programmer Betsy Hable, uh, and we're working through we're working through building soft uh, a new feature in a piece of software, and we're talking a lot about the ideas from the course and about you know how we make the decisions in doing that. And then I'm also doing every week, I'm doing a live Q and a for an hour. So that's something that's actually broadcast people log in and it's recorded as well. So I'm making the recordings available, but it's something where the, the members of this beta run of the course can actually participate live.
0: Got it. So it sounds like you're using a mixture of, you know, archived material that you, you've already created. You're creating some new videos and you have some in the moment sort of.
1: Right. Yeah. And then I've also got a forum, which is new. Um, and it's just for the course,
0: this problem, I don't even know if you can answer this question. How did you come up with that formulation or was it just sort of trying things out,
1: like trying things mean? out in my mind, I guess. Yeah. yeah. A lot of it was just sort of like pacing around my deck, figuring out like, what is, what do I need to add to this to make it a solid value? Like, what do I have the capacity to do? Was, is always a question I ask myself as well, because it's, it's, it's no good committing myself to something that sounds awesome, but that I can't actually do. Um, right. And like, what would I want as somebody taking this course? Just sort of asking a lot of questions like that and, and coming up with a mix of things that, that made sense to me at the time anyway.
0: Well, yeah, because I think there's a way in which... Let's add a, I'm not saying you did this, but there's a way in which we could have a forum because, you know, Facebook groups and forums are like all the rage these days and then it might not fit for you. But it sounds like you were really thinking about what would you want and then also what can I commit to, which is, sounds like a really great mixture.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. I,
0: I mean, rather than following trends, right? I think it's easy to follow a trend. We think that we have to do something one way. Right. Right, like it has to be a book, it has to be a this or it has to be a that, um, rather than thinking about the material and the people and what you can do
1: right, yeah, and you know some of this some of what I came up with is just like informed my by my own unique experiences, like I one of the things I do on the side is I do pair programming consulting sessions, and I get a ton of inspiration from those and so I kind of wanted to incorporate the, the pair programming experience, even though I can't do it with all of the course members, I could at least show what it's like to actually pair program on some of these things, and instead of having a neatly encapsulated video where every all the problems are solved in advance, have like, this is what it's really like. Cause that's something that's been missing from the Ruby Tapas experience for a long time is, you know, they are very intentionally polished videos. They're not showing the real experience of puzzling things out.
0: And it sounds like you wanted to show more of that.
1: Exactly. It's like, okay, if I'm going to, if I'm going to really add value to this, one of the things I know I want to do is I want to give that side of, of things, that sort of messy live side of things it's due.
0: How did you decide whether it was going to be one person versus multiple
1: people. Mm, Yeah. So, um, experience and just the experience of knowing that like, I can do something like I've done videos of just myself working on code and they're not tremendously compelling, but I've had, I've had the pleasure of so much experience working with other people on things that I just know that like I can say, I can, you know, go to a friend uh, like Betsy and say, "Let's do this thing. and Let's record ourselves doing it." And I will have no idea what's going to come out of it, but I will be a hundred percent sure that what comes out of it is going to be valuable. You know, and so I just have so much experience of doing stuff like that and seeing the the serendipitous product of it that it's like, you know, this this is a sure thing. Even though I have no idea what exactly I'm going to end up with, this is going to be a sure thing as far as as coming up with something valuable.
0: So how? edited are those pair programming sessions like how real do you make it you know because you said you want to make it real and real life is messy like how edited are they
1: <laughs> so yeah that's yeah no that's that's a really good question and and what I settled on I have this wonderful video editor who I, I gave him the first of the videos and he kind of did his thing on it I really liked the way what he ended up with and so like on the one hand I want I want the reality of it. I want, you know, people seeing the oopsies and the dead ends and the head scratching and, you know, trying something out and then kind of going back on it. On the other hand, I don't necessarily want people to have to sit through like going to get another cup of tea. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know, or like really long periods of silent typing and stuff like that. So, so what my editor came up with is, but he basically came up with a cut that clips out all of the just pauses, just like nothing's happening during periods of just like a lot of long typing, he speeds up the video. So you're not really missing anything. Nothing's left out as far as the experience of programming. Um, but it's a little bit less excruciating than just like sitting there or watching somebody act like mistype something three times.
0: That's smart. Yeah. That, that, that's really smart. And how did you decide on just having it be pairing with you and Betsy versus having different partners?
1: Um, I wanted to show the, um, the progress of a feature from beginning to end. Mm, got it. And so I wanted to kind of, I wanted to show what it might be, be like if I were participating on a team, uh, you know, some, well, some teams, they, they pair with different people every day, but mm-hmm. some teams you'll stick together with somebody as you work your way through a, uh, a ticket. And that's kind of what I wanted to show.
0: That's great that's really good for I feel like this is such good information like just to soak it up like that how you made the decisions that you made and why um, and so to going to that how did you figure out the let's say the the pricing let's start with there like the differentiation between Ruby tapas and moon mm-hmm. um, how did you figure out the pricing for the first this this semi live beta
1: I don't know that I thought about the Ruby tapas that much what Honestly, I just kind of pulled it off the top of my head. I think what I wound up with was like one ninety nine early bird, two forty nine beta member, and then it's going to go up again after after the beta's over and after I package package it up um, as as something that people can take at their own pace. But um, yeah, I mean, it was it was kind of off the top of my head. It was kind of it was kind of one of those calculations of like. So one thing that I'll do is is I'll be like okay how much money do I want to make with this thing okay now let's play with how like price per seat various versions of price per seat versus number of seats I, I think I could fill then from there you know I'll take a look at the the price point that I come come down on and say okay what do I need to to put in here to make it worth that Um, so I, I really like, I kind of like doing the thing where I pick a price and then figure out what would be worth that rather than doing the thing where I take what I have and figure, try to figure out what it's worth. I had an idea of, of what I, what would feel worth it? Like for an initial run, you know, how much I would need to make, to make it feel worth it. Um, and, uh, that kind of went from there. So I wound up selling, selling 300 seats, um, at depending on when they got it, and whether they were in a team, um, somewhere between 200 and 250 per seat.
0: Wait. So, what do you mean, depending on if, if they were in a team, was there a different?
1: I I did have some team discounts. So, like, past a certain number of seats, if you're buying for your team, there was there's a a discount.
0: Oh, and how, do you did you have very many teams? A surprising
1: amount, actually. Yeah. I don't have a count handy.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know, that's okay. Well, it's just interesting because I can kind of see that. Because let's say they're all going through it at the same time, then you're inculcating this knowledge or this way of thinking to an entire team. Yeah. Right? Versus one person taking it and then trying to bring it to a team. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not saying that can't work. I'm
1: al- I'm also really lucky. Like, I'm I'm really lucky in that you know I have a certain audi- like built-in audience, people that have been following me for a long time, and so I have people at this point who are team leads, uh, who or who are CTOs and things like that, and so they can they can look at something like this and be like, okay, I want to get this for my whole team.
0: I do want to say that launching Moom. It sounds like it took you know, just like less than six months from start to finish to, to get to real, like the heavy lifting. I I know things percolate in the back of your head for a long time, but it took less than six months. And how quickly did you sell out those 300 seats? Like a few weeks? Yeah. Like a month maybe. Okay. Yeah. Ish is totally fine. Right. But like, so I think about that, you know, six months to maybe at most six months to create probably more like a few and then a month to sell out seats. I think that the thing that we want to be really clear about is that your, your, all the work you've done with Ruby Tapas has really probably helped contribute to the success yes. of Moon. Yeah. Right? And all the speaking you've done and just being in the community for so many years.
1: Yeah, that, I mean, you know, I have a, a profile on Twitter and also, I mean, you cannot underestimate the, the power of a mailing list. And, you know, at this point, I have, a, I have um, you know, depending on how I slice it, I have maybe 10,000 people that I can email occasionally with something like this and you know I know that there are already developers who are interested in the kind of thing that I do and that is something that took you know many many years to accumulate that's not something that you know everybody has immediate access to
0: Right, because I, I think some, I like to dispel the myth that we can just create something in a week and put it out there and it's going to be wildly successful. And, you know, I, I think it takes a lot more work than that. And the folks who you see who have successful launches often have been toiling for years before that. Yeah. To build the, the assets and the audience and the thinking and all of that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, especially the audience you know i think uh, sometimes i think you see some successful launches where somebody found a way to leverage somebody else's audience you know they they ha- had a connection where where somebody else was willing to to mar- you know market to their mailing list or something like that i think it's it's a lot rarer that you can sort of come from nowhere and and sell out something like that i mean it happens it absolutely happens it really you know if right. if you just find an absolutely winning formula in a space that that nobody's addressing um, it totally happens
0: right that like let's say it has really great SEO, really highly targeted no one's addressing for sure yeah, but I just think that that's not that's not going to be everybody that's not going to be pretty typical right and I tell people that because I, I don't want new creators to think they're failing if something doesn't lift off the ground right away right there's this expectation that you're supposed to create something and it's supposed to be a runaway success or else you're a failure right. I think there's a little bit of that in the world, and I I like to dispel that. Myth. I mean,
1: I've been I've been intentionally raising my profile uh, for ten years now, more than ten years now, and you know it's it's a slow snowball.
0: Well, let's talk about how you've been raising your profile um, um, and/or marketing the things that you do.
1: I started really thinking about it, I guess, back in like two thousand six, two thousand seven, um, back when I kind of switched careers, semi-switched careers from from working in, like, big defense contractors to uh, working at a rail shop. And at that point, I started started blogging. I started getting on Twitter once Twitter became a thing. I was fairly early there.
0: How did you start doing those things? Like, why did you start blogging and going on Twitter? Was it expression? Was it to build an audience or something well, else? a
1: combination of those. But, I mean, it was kind of kind of strategic for me, I had a, a realization very early on that, like, you know, I had uh, and have a family to support, a big family to support. And I kind of came to this realization early on that no matter how lucrative of a job I ever have, or, you know, how well my career goes, um, there's always some, some sort of catastrophe that could just wipe out all of my earthly wealth. That's just the way life is, and like, and I kind of realized that, like, the only safety that I would ever have, the only kind of reliable safety net I'd ever have, would be people, would be, you know, having a community of people that, I, you know, that care for me for some reason, and that, you know, that I'm contributing to, and that that have a reason to to care that I exist, you know, the only safety I'd ever have have would be in community and in being known and and in being valuable to people. So, I just you know at that point i decided that that was what i was going to pursue you know being useful to people and so i did you know i i got my my tried to get my work out there um in the form of blog posts and like i said i was like early on the twitter thing and then started doing talks um and eventually started publishing ebooks and stuff like that so
0: you know let's say let's talk about Loom in specific when you were wanting to publicize it how did you how did you market it i know you said Market or don't market it. I'm not sure how much you did. But what did you do? Mostly
1: mailing list stuff. I mean, I, I talked about it on Twitter. I talk about everything on Twitter. So that and, and mailing list stuff. Uh, that's pretty much it. I'm trying to think if there's anything else.
0: Nah. Well, let's. I want to get specific again. Like, how many times did you send your email list? Uh, you know, did you ping them about, like, a couple times or, like, a bunch? I don't of-
1: remember things that happened in the past. Um...
0: About
1: Yeah, no, I'm trying to think, I don't know, a few times, not a lot. Like I, you know, there's different like slices of the mailing list and, and oh, okay. So here's one of the things that I did, um, as part of setting it up, you know, I created a big, great big landing page with lots of copy as, as you're supposed to do, but I also created an email course. So I, I, I pulled together a lot of material that isn't exactly in the course, but it's kind of inspired by the course. And put that together as a multi-part email course. And so a lot of what I was, what I was, uh, well, what I was marketing early on was opting into the email course, the free email course. And, you know, I like that for you know, a few reasons. Part, part of it is just that like, you know, if I'm going to ask somebody for 200, $250, I really want to have given them something valuable first. You know, I also, I want that self-selection. Like if somebody, if somebody gets the first few emails and then they stop reading them or they start, they unsubscribe, well, that means that this course, you know, the this course that I'm selling is not for them. And that's good information. It also gave me like, there were some points in that email course where I was able to ask some questions and those questions turned out to be super useful for guiding the development of, of the Moom course. You know, I was able to say like, what do you still want to know? Like, what are you still in the dark about? stuff like that and and that really helped with deciding what to put in the moon course so yeah I, I emailed my mailing lists a few times about the um, the course the the um, the free email course and the free email course from there people went into a list where I could periodic occasionally email them some updates about the the moon course that was coming up and be like you know hey I'm 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 selling I'm pre-selling seats for a, a reduced price right now if you want to get in on in on that and stuff like that.
0: Thank you for the tactical. Like really that's super tactical advice. Yeah. But I really appreciate that because I think people have questions like that like how how did you do it? Give me specifics, right? <laughs> and I think that's really interesting that the the get it, you know giving them not only did you use your list, but then you created a new list and you tried to give value before you got anything. And you also tried to get feedback rather than just completely creating it in a vacuum.
1: And I will say that like, so there are different, you know, theories of how to do those kinds of free email courses, especially as far as like, how hard do you sell? You know, if you have a product that you'd like people to upgrade to, how hard do you sell that? I just went, I went the route of, Every email that I sent out had something usually towards the end that was like, and if you want to find out more about this particular aspect, I'm selling this course. So always there
0: was a call to action, as they call it.
1: Exactly. Always a call to action. Not, you know, it wasn't a super hard one. You know, sometimes it was just a PS. Sometimes it was just a, a, a parenthesized link, but, but yeah, always a call to action. I, I, I was not shy about saying, yes, I'm trying to sell this. Um, yes, I'm trying to sell this other course to you.
0: Right. I, mean, I, that's, think that's, I think that's in at least
1: was... one, or one email, I probably even said, yes, I'm trying to sell this other course to you.
0: <laughs> right. but Like, straight up. I mean, a lot of people can be way too quiet about it. I mean, obviously, the people who are way too hard and, you know, just push everything and give no value and just sell, which also isn't very successful. But I do think a lot of folks lean on the place that they don't actually make the ask. Yeah. Right? They don't, they don't make the pitch at all. So that's great that you were just upfront about it. Well, so one thing that I'm curious about is the future of Ruby Tapas. When you were thinking about, right, so you started Moom because you were wanting to explore other ways to use your content and maybe get away from, you know, a, a, you, you know you've been working on getting away from the grind or the, the hamster wheel of Ruby Tapas, but, do, you know, have you thought about the future that you'll eventually move towards more things like Moom and go away from Ruby Tapas, or are you still trying to figure that out? Or repack it, or even repackage it. I think
1: I'd say, say I'm still figuring it out. I think, without thinking too hard about it, I, I try to kind of straddle a line between strategy and being open to if, to possibilities that I haven't considered before. So I try not to be static. Static is bad. Static, like as far as I'm concerned, there's no such thing as a as a, as a stable, sustainable business. You're either growing or you're dying. Because par- somewhere. Some part of your business is dying. Like your audience is aging out from under you, or or moving on to other technologies. In my particular case, you know there are a, a, a thousand variables. You know where the world world is moving, and so like st- being static and st- stable and sustainable isn't really because like even trees. Even trees to grow are, are constantly dying in parts and growing in others. So I, I try to be moving forward, but I try not to have like a really fixed strategy because that's another form of stasis. It's like, you know, your strategy can run into reality really hard. So I try to do things. I guess what I try to do is I try to do things that are sort of generative of interesting new futures uh, and then see where that takes me. So like... Doing a course is very generative of interesting new futures because it exposes pe- people to a different format of what I could help, of how I can help them, and it teaches me new skills. It informs me about okay, am I good at this? Am, I, am Do I have what it takes for this? Do I enjoy it? Um, are there aspects of this that I enjoy? But but and aspects of it that I don't enjoy. Are there things that I'm that are there little pieces of it that are surprisingly effective? um like I've discovered I really love the Q&As and I really want to do that more and maybe outside of the confines of a course um because that's been super fun I've I've had a co-host for each of them and that has been really really neat um it's kind of like a podcast format but it's kind of different you know so yeah I try to have things that are like you know interesting interesting petri dishes, you know, generative petri dishes of, of new possibilities going on and then kind of evaluate, okay, what does this tell me about where I can go from here? So, you know, ask me, ask me in several months after I've packaged up the moon course and seen how that sells. And I'll, I'll probably know a little bit more about where I'm going next.
0: Well, I love too, that it sounds like every project you're being really introspective and thinking about, Oh, do I enjoy this? Is it not only working from an outside perspective, but am I actually enjoying myself? Yeah. Am I enjoying the whole process?
1: You've got to do that. Like, if you're doing the independent thing, if you're trying to be in business for yourself, I think you have to be really, really sensitive to your own needs and your own tastes because that's, you know, your whole business is built on your inspiration. It's built on your ability to keep being creative and your ability to keep going and doing this thing. And so, a lot of my d- decisions, are based less on what do I think the market will, will accept, what do I think the market wants, uh, and more on what can I deliver? What do I know I can deliver and what is outside the bounds of what I can deliver? Like, you know, when I chose the format of Ruby Tapas initially, choosing to do sh- very short videos, choosing to do them on whatever topic I was thinking about at the time that I was writing them rather than like long series of, of related videos, that was all about like, what can I do? What do I know I can do without burning out really fast?
0: I think there's a drive to what should I do, doing what's popular, doing what's whatever. And what I think I hear you saying is I'm really listening to myself. Um, yes, I care about what the market can do and all of that, but I'm really listening to myself. Yeah,
1: I mean, you've got to feel for traction at the same time. And somewhere you're going to find, you're going to find a, uh, you know, a sweet spot where what you, are, what you enjoy, what you're capable of delivering gets traction. And sometimes sometimes we, what I find is that like, you know, you have something that, that will have traction. It just needs a little tweak. Um, and I don't have a ready to hand example of that in case you're going to ask. But
0: <laughs> I, I won't. It's,
1: it's not always like, oh, you, you know, it's not always like you throw yourself out there on the marketplace, you fail and you just, you know, go home with your tail between your legs because what you have is not what the, the market wants. You know, a lot of times you just, you need to evolve a little bit, but not so far that it's outside of what you really want to do.
0: When you're thinking about Moom, do you already have ideas or changes you want to make for when you package it up? Like since that you've learned while doing the, the semi-live beta version?
1: I don't know if I have major changes that I want to m- make in that. I mean, I think what I've learned may inform how I do future things like it. Um, I think I've realized that I can probably get away with, with packaging some stuff up that I've already done and maybe not add quite as, mi- uh, as much um, as I tried to add with Moom, because that has, has been, it's been awesome, but it's also been really time consuming. Um, yep. You know, I've, I've realized that like, that's a lot of material and I'm probably giving people people more material than they can absorb in a week. And so I can tweak, you know, based on, on that. I don't know if I'm change, going to change that course that much.